Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hello, Don. J.J., what's your favorite sequel? My favorite sequel? Part two. I mean, the classic is Hot Shots Part Two. Just because. <laughs> that, I don't even think I've seen a hockey thing. No, no, no. It's hot like shots. a What's hot, shots? hot shots. It's like a mockumentary kind of, not mockumentary, but a mocku action film. And it starred <laughs> Charlie Sheen before Tiger Blood. Um, it was very like, and it's only because of just the the last part of the name is the part de. Yeah. You always remember that. But yeah. I mean, I am a sucker for like trilogies or anything right. like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Like, so any Would you story consider, those aren't continues. really like uh, sequels, though. Those are more, right? Are they sequels? Are they trilogies? Yeah, they're, they're sequels. They're sequels. They're sequels. So something, something part yeah, two. Yeah, because it's like the, well, you have like the first book and then the second book and the, like there are sequels to yeah, those books. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the thing with sequels is they're normally bad. They're normally worse. They're normally worse <laughs> normally, than the first one. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Like Major League Two. Oh, that was oh and I like it when they're so bad they just don't even have the same cast. It's just a different. Yeah. <laughs> so they bring in like, just different actors. <laughs> nobody's gonna watch this. Yeah, nobody's it's gonna see this. Straight it's not to gonna cable. Matter. Yeah. Well, we are breaking that tradition today. Yeah. Because this is actually a sequel podcast to the previous podcast, which was Best of 2017 Mid Year. Uh huh. And this, this is, is, this is part we're really. Two. We're going part two. So we're doing best of mid-year part two. Yeah. Love it. One of Probably one of four. That we'll do for the year. Yeah, we'll do for the year. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we need to get going if we're going to get through this. Yeah. People love these episodes, by the way, I because do. they're little snippets of some of the most favorite interviews we've ever done. Mm-hmm. It's a great introduction that you can kind of listen to and go, you know, I think I want to go back and listen to that whole interview and hear more of the conversation. All right, this first clip, JJ, is with Lee Cockrell. Yes. And you love this one because you're a huge Disney fan. I'm a yeah, Disney fan. Too, you're a huge fan. Disney fan. Yeah, yeah. And Somebody actually sent me a Disney pin, like a special Imagineer pin. After. Oh, I yeah. I love it. It's already up in my collection. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was the executive vice president of Disney operations. He, he basically ran all the Orlando theme parks. And a couple of things that I really loved about this interview, these, these are sort of personal. But one, he grew up in a really dysfunctional home. And, you know, my home wasn't super dysfunctional, but dad left. And, yeah, yeah. and he just, you love it when a guy like that makes it. Or at least yeah. I do, because I'm like, ah, yeah, I can do <laughs> yeah, this. You know? yeah. And uh, so that was really awesome. But also, he had this sort of epiphany. He has a very powerful personality. Mm-hmm. If you make it to there in life, you just do. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so he had this very powerful personality. And he started realizing that he was affecting people's lives. Yep. And he wanted to just become a more tender, gentle, I mean, he's still driven, but a yeah, more yeah. tender, gentle person. And there's just a lot to learn because a lot of people, they become powerful, they don't realize they're powerful. Yeah. Especially like dads. They don't yeah. realize how much power they have over this young person because they yeah. just feel still feel like a 20-something or a 30-something. Yep. And that alone is worth gold. But a beautiful man, a great leader, and I won't wait any longer. Here's a little bit of my conversation with Lee Cockrell. It feels to me like you're saying a career, a successful career as a leader heading toward executive is all about people. I mean, there's just a ton of you got to understand people. You've got to understand yourself if you want to succeed. Am I accurate? Well, yeah, I think nobody gets in trouble in their career very often for having not knowing what they're doing. It's, uh, what they get in trouble with is their behavior and how they treat people and how they speak to people and even ignore them and be preoccupied and all the things we don't train or develop them. And those are the things that I think really get a leader in trouble. I think uh, 
I had a lot of people, uh, the business I was in, knew more technically than I did, but I really got to where I understood the value of focusing on people because at the end of the day, as I put in one of my other books, your people are your brand. And if they wake up in the morning excited to come to work and you've trained them well and you've selected well, you're just going to have a great business. And uh, too many people, I think, out there want to be bosses instead of teachers. And when they start to think about teaching people and helping them get ahead, you get ahead too. And that's uh, that worked well for me for 41 years and uh, <laughs> I recommend it. Why don't we learn that in business school? There's some people stuff in business school, but you know, it feels like it should be half the curriculum. Well, it should be, and I'm concerned that it's not. Not only that, time management, how to organize yourself, how to yeah. think about where to spend your time and where not to spend your time and who not to hang out with and all those kinds of things. People waste so much time anymore, and I think uh, these softer skills are not being taught. I think they slowly are coming around, but not fast enough where people – really need to understand how deeply important it is to have people trust you. Well, you say it on page 143. I'm reading from your book. You say, if people don't like you or trust you, then you are not going to get very far, and you will never quite know why, because they may never tell you. Nobody tells you if you're a jerk, do they? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> uh, Nobody tells probably not me. a good idea, especially if you're the boss. <laughs> You know, we're talking to 50,000, a lot of executives right now, a lot of business leaders. How do they stop and do an assessment right now on whether or not they are not performing well in terms of their people skills? Is there a question they can ask themselves? Well, I think like you just said, you get sometimes you can't see that yourself. Uh, we get so caught up and everybody uh, thinks we're great and tells us we're great when we're really not. And uh, I think reflection is really difficult for a lot of people to to really stop and say, okay, what am I doing that's okay? What am I not doing? Uh, what should I be doing? Do I involve my people? Do they trust me? Are they able to come and tell me the hardest uh, information and I can accept it properly? I just think there's a bunch of people in the world, and that, I, that's, a, I think, something I have. I, I have that ability to understand what I'm not doing well yeah. and uh, try to surround myself by people who can do that well. But on the people side, I had to work on that, too, because I was very insecure. I grew up in a kind of a dysfunctional family. I didn't have a college degree. And so when you're uh, insecure, you often are a little mean or a little hard or insecurity causes you to try to be in charge and tell everybody what to do and control everything. I had to get over that. I think that happens to a lot of business leaders that they're kind of insecure. They uh, are trying to put on a good face. Yeah, but a lot of business leaders, they don't get over it. I mean, you know, we all know those people. So what helped you get over it? Because you described two different personalities. One doesn't often become the other. It's very clear when you're working for a jerk boss or there's somebody that you know is kind of a jerk. It's very clear it's coming out of insecurities. Yeah. And they can't be vulnerable. They can't learn. They can't say things like they have insecurities. And yet you were that guy and you became somebody different. How in the world did that happen? Well, I was being very uh, successful in my career. And I was getting the bonuses and the cars and stock options and all that stuff. And everybody was praising me on my performance. But I went to visit one of my managers once out in El Paso, Texas at the Marriott. And uh, he had been transported to the hospital that he had gotten so much anxiety from me coming. And we'd never even met each other before. Wow. And when he came back that night, we had dinner and we talked about it. And he told me that. He said, your reputation gets here long before you do, Lee. And they say, Lee will always find things wrong. And that really struck me. And that was kind of the day I started rethinking who I was. And I even thought if my mother and grandmother heard that, they'd probably kick me upside the wall. So uh, <laughs> uh, I knew better. But you know what? When you yeah. hang out with 
people that misbehave, you kind of, if you hang out in the wrong environment, you become like that eventually if you're not careful. And, yeah. I just had a conversation with one of my staff guys this morning. We were talking about another leader, a different leader. And this leader has a lot of power. And somebody on his team did something really stupid and uh, was disloyal. And this leader went after him. And what we talked about was, hey, this big, powerful leader has a tank and this little small guy who screwed up has a water pistol, and he thinks they both have tanks. But what it looks like from the outside is the tank is attacking the water pistol, and he's looking like the villain, and he doesn't know it. Here's my question. First of all, everybody listening to this podcast probably has more power than the average person, but not everybody realizes they have more power. It sounds like you know, you going out and visiting this manager at, at the hotel out there was a point where you realized all of a sudden I'm a powerful person, which you weren't if you grew up in a dysfunctional environment and you came up from nothing. Was there a point where you realized, okay, I, I actually have to step into this and own the fact that I can crush people without even knowing I'm doing it? Yeah, I, I got to where I knew that I'm so organized and disciplined that that alone intimidates people that uh, I kind of never forget. And it's supposed to be ready at five o'clock Friday. It better be. And I was always that kind of person. But I uh, I really did step back and rethink why I was behaving that way. And uh, and slowly but surely started reading more about leaders, going to classes, trying to learn how to be uh, more open and, and to trust people. That was my problem. I didn't trust anybody because I wow. kind of had a whole life of not trusting anybody. And when you don't trust people you uh you want to control when you're a control person you misbehave and she was i mean it, it happened in my marriage i mean my wife and i are doing great now but in my early days when i was immature and young i wanted to control everything i want everything my way and uh that's the personality flaw that i got probably growing up and uh, my mother was married five times i was adopted twice and got my name cockerel when i was 16 and then i dropped out of college and went in the army so i was already pretty insecure from not having a college degree and so i finally got over it as my successes as i had more success my confidence grew and when my confidence grew i started backing off and i started slowly but surely uh trusting other people putting the right people around me and i said my nickname used to be doberman now it's cocker spaniel so uh, <laughs> i've come a long way yeah, I tell people I can bite, but I don't anymore. <laughs> More power to Disney. Yes. <laughs> All hail Disney. If you want to listen to the rest of my conversation with Lee Cockrell, just get episode 38. Go to iTunes and download the Building a Story Brand podcast, episode 38. Well, the next clip is with Shalene Johnson. Yeah. She's quite a character. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Betsy and I are pretty good about this. There's a reason Story Brand exists, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have sort of an end game. It's, story Brand is buying us certain things. And for us, it's hospitality. We, mm -hmm. you know, we want to be hospitable to people. And Shalene Johnson talks about you know her business started scaling up, and her, she and her husband were in business for the business. Yeah. And it didn't work. And uh, well, it wasn't working for them personally. Yeah, well, yeah, in their personal lives. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it worked in the business. Yeah, yeah. And it made them millions of dollars. Yeah. But her husband actually turned her one day and said, "When does this end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like when do we when do we like, have enough? <laughs> so, yeah. Seriously, this is this is how our life has become, and this is why we do this. And I love this for two reasons. One is it'll inspire you to think about what's the end game. Mm -hmm. You know, how are we going to get out of this, and what are we trying to buy? Mm -hmm. And what and really what you're asking is when is enough enough? Yeah. And the second is why. Why are we doing this? A lot of people don't have a why. The other thing, if you want to listen to the whole interview, she really talks about how to scale up your business, but it all starts with what's this for? What's this about? Yeah. And so a wonderful interview with Shalene Johnson. Here's a little clip of her helping us understand there's got to be a why to our business. There's got to be an end game. 
What is it that we need to understand if we're going to scale this thing up, regardless of what we're talking about, whether we're selling eggs from chickens or whether we're selling ice cream or financial advice or whatever? What do we need to do? It's great because you're right. It really doesn't matter what it is you're doing or selling or passionate about. The method which you apply is really pretty much the same. Yeah. I think, however, where my opinion um, or suggestion would differ from most is that I think the number one thing you have to do is decide what you want it to look like. You know, how, how big do you want it to be? And to really understand what's involved in that before you even move forward in doing that, because I'm a great example of somebody who scaled, my husband and I together, scaled our business to a point that we were, you know, quote unquote, very successful looking at us, but not successful when it comes to happiness. Mm, yeah. Like we had money in the bank and all these great things, but absolutely no ability to breathe. I've had some experiences running my business where you turn a corner, you know, you end up building this little revenue stream that looked like it had a lot of potential. And now you've got customer service issues and you kind of wish you'd have given up that half million dollar opportunity to not have this pain. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Absolutely. I mean, for us, I think we just got so big that I shouldn't say so big. We, we, we kept getting more successful, more successful. And these things don't happen overnight. They happen gradually, kind of like weight gain, where mm-hmm. you, just, you just don't even realize it's happening until one day you just look in the mirror and go, who is this person? And, and for us, I remember feeling guilty that I wasn't happy. Like that was, I was just like, what an ungrateful person you are to have all these things and to be unhappy that you have to work hard. Like, this is what it is. This is what everybody does. Suck it up. This is what, you know, being an entrepreneur is all about. This is what successful people go through. So don't say anything. And I think my husband was kind of walking in those shoes too. And we Mm. both just trudged forward until, you know, there wasn't like this major car crash or someone had cancer. It was just one of those days where he looked at me and we've been married for almost 25 years. And he looked at me and just said, when is this going to be over? Mm. And I said, what over? What do you mean? And he said, like, when can we slow down? It's never going to change. It's never going to change. He just kind of walked away from me angry. And I just felt my stomach dropped. I felt like, how did this get here? Wait, you don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Why are we here? You know, money isn't important to us. Our kids are what's important to us. So how do we undo this? Yeah. And that's why I think the first step for everyone is to ask yourself, what does it need to look like? No matter how big it scales, what is too much? And how many people are too many people to be responsible for? And yeah. how many hours are too many hours? Like you, you have to start with that. Otherwise, every one of your listeners is an exceptional goal getter. I mean, they know how to master and accomplish tasks. They know how to go after things. But we oftentimes go after things that don't lead us to a purpose-driven life, don't help us and allow us to feel like and to be happy. Mm. So I think you have to decide those things before you start checking off your to-do list because we know you're going to do it. Let's just figure out what it needs to look like in order for you to be happy. All right, that's terrific. Yeah. JJ, do you have, what is your career buying you? Adventure. 
truthfully. Really? Like, you want to, like, yeah. your, your future, you're just like, but yeah. you're an adventurous guy now, so yeah. you're actually getting a lot of that. So I, that's what, like, being able to do what I do allows me to have, like, a lot of adventure and see the world. Because I believe, like, when my world is big and kind of I'm taking those kind of adventures and it. risks, that then I actually bring that back to, like, the people that I'm around. I help them be more adventurous. <laughs> yeah. My world stays big, so my perspective stays big. Yeah. So it's not really yeah. just, like, to go off and, like, dive off a cliff. It's genuinely to, like, experience new things to grow my world so I can help other people grow Which theirs. makes you want to go to work and do great work every day because exactly. it's, it's got this other component to it of it's buying this sort of thing. Yeah. Betsy and I feel the same way. We know we're building this kind of retreat center. I mean, we were building a retreat center where we can practice hospitality and help yeah. people clarify their life and their message and those kinds of things. And it makes story brand make sense to me. Yeah. It gets me up at, you know, 6 a.m. And I just love it. And it also, it's an end game. Like yeah. once we come up with this, it's not about the scoreboard. It's about what can this buy, and, yeah. and so just a wonderful deal. If you want to listen to the whole conversation, download episode 29 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Again, you can do that on iTunes. All right, one of the most talked about mm-hmm. interviews that we did mm-hmm. this year was with Stephen Mansfield. I sent this one to so many people. Yeah, I've, I heard that. I saw that all over social media, that mm-hmm. people were sending it to other folks because it's really about leaders, and it's about leaders and why they fall. Yeah. Which I hope nobody was offended that I sent this to them. <laughs> like in the sense of like, hey, you are about to crash. And I don't burn. think they were. Yeah, just the, just the spirit of the interview yeah, is no, just so wonderful. protective. Yep. And Stephen, he's just brilliant. He's a brilliant guy. We actually had breakfast the other day. Just a brilliant human being. But anyway, he goes into the signs of a leadership crash. And the first one is being out of season, which you wouldn't think mm-hmm. of. But when he explains it, you just go, oh, that's exactly it. You're just yep. not where you're supposed to be. You were supposed to move on. Yeah. And you didn't move on. And he talks about that as a symptom that something bad is about to happen. So listen, if you know anybody in leadership, definitely have them listen to the entire interview. But here's just a little clip of my conversation with Stephen Mansfield. You're helping leaders to not crash and burn, or you sometimes go in after they've crashed and burned, and you don't spin it you just try to that's right help them figure out how to get back on track yep. and save a community from a death spiral after yeah. their leader goes yeah. down is that was that fair to say that's very fair you know for a lot of years most people know me as an author and speaker but for a lot of years i've had a consulting firm and we specialized in cleaning up after the crash some of the biggest ones in the papers biggest ones in the news we were involved in you know the ceo the politician the general whoever the famous preacher would have a moral failing they were stealing money they were sleeping with the secretary whatever and it blew up an organization we would right. fix it well what happened was over time i began to realize there are about oh, eight to ten common signs if people just knew what to look for that could help prevent this. Because, uh, you know, after we did 20 or 30 of these, I realized that, you know, there are basically about eight to 10. And what's interesting to me, Tim and I were talking about this. Tim's our producer. We were talking about this last night when we were looking at your document here. And and we're going to get into this. They're not things that we would have thought of. Like I said to Tim, I said, uh, you know, they're surrounded by a bunch of yes men and all that stuff is true. But being out of season and creating a third place, yeah. I never would have thought of that. Then when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly what happens. And nobody sees that. And well, that's and that's the frustrating thing is that most of the factors that prevent these crashes are soft issues. They're not, you know, the accountant should have done this a certain way or the lawyer should have done a thing in a certain, a certain way. That may play into some of these. But for the most part, there are 10 soft factors that would prevent most of these major crashes. Mm-hmm. And that makes it both more exciting and more frustrating all at the same time right. because it's, it's easily doable, but very few people are. I want to go through it. 
for a couple reasons. One is I want to prevent the people listening from crashing and burning. The people who listen to the show tend to be high-impact folks. They're business leaders. And like it or not, people are dependent on you. Leadership is different. You don't get to do what you want. There's a different dynamic for leaders that we've got to own. Yes, yes. It does no good. What happens when you don't? Well, I can tell you that the stat is that there are billions of dollars lost to corporate America every year through these kinds of crashes. Yeah. Think about, uh, and I won't name any names, but think about a company that maybe you know where the CEO did something. He had an affair. He misspent the money. He violated, uh, you know, maybe a congressman violates the franking privileges. Uh, but staying in the CEO world for the for a moment hundreds of millions of dollars are lost to the brand, to the company, devastation. Because of a person. One person, let's just say he takes a million dollars out of the account and he sleeps with the secretary. But that damages the brand hundreds of millions of dollars worth. And that's not including- That translates into cost jobs. Yes, massive, massive. Lawsuits, you can't believe how the lawsuits fly in these situations. And here's here's the issue. It can all be prevented. It can all be prevented. Yeah. Well, like I said, these aren't the common things you would think about. And I think every single one of them, and there are 10, and we're going to have to fly through them. We're going to give you a way to read about them later, but we're going to have to fly through them. The first is what? Now, this is a sign, a symptom, that you're heading towards somewhere you ought not go. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. What's the first? The first one, and it's a little bit mystical, so it bothers business people, is being out of season. We all know what it's like uh, to be out of season. We made commitments. We said we'd stay only for a certain period of time. We told our spouses that we would leave after so many years. We don't feel the mojo. We don't feel like we're in place. We were good in the first 18 months. We're diminishing in the second 18 months. The third 18 months is going to just kill us. We know we're out of season. We know our time. Does that up. mean, like, to translate that, like, you're an entrepreneur, you got something started, it's running, now you're having to manage it, and you're not a manager. You're not you're using your so gifts. So you're, your, yes. you're out of your element. Exactly. Call it what you will. All pistons aren't firing. Uh, the gift isn't there. The grace isn't there. If you want to speak in spiritual terms, whatever you want to call it, you know that you're not where you're supposed to be. We've all had it happen. We're working along in a job and suddenly it ain't right no more. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Sometimes it's got concretes to it. You committed to 18 months for the wife and then you guys would retire or you'd come back from the Indonesian office or whatever it was. And when you're out of season, you know it. And that's when, this is the key, that's when you're vulnerable and off balance. When you're out of season, you're vulnerable and off balance. And you're looking for some way to numb yourself. You're looking for some sense of meaning. What are you looking for when you're out of season? You're trying to fix it. Uh, You're out of season with your marriage. Your wife's ticked off, so the secretary is looking good. You're out of season. You're not making the company's not making the money it should, so you falsify the reports. You fake it with government, you know, agencies, and so you're going to go to jail. I mean, this is this stuff has actually happened. And what I'm saying is that every single we call them post mortems, uh, every single post mortem we do on a major leadership crash, the lead guy, the person who perpetrated, said, "I was out of season, and I didn't know how to make it right." How do you get back in season? What do you do? I mean, if somebody says, that's me, they're listening. They say, that's me. What do they need to do? You got to stop. You got to stop, stop doing, doing whatever you're doing. Stop doing what you're out of season because you're not going to be doing it well. You're going to start pushing. You're going to start stressing. You're going to start medicating. You're going to try to fix it. You're going to try to fix it at an ego level. You're going to try to fix it at a business and finance level. And that's what gets people in trouble. So stop, admit it, step out, ask for a sabbatical, do whatever you have to do to stop the daily pushing on something that's out of season. Get back to what it is that defines 
the fact that you're out of season. Talk to your spouse, talk to you, the people who advise you, your band of brothers, your band of sisters, whoever they are. Go back and say, look, I, I realize I'm, I'm at 19 months when I said 15 months was the end. Let's talk about if this needs to end. Right. And then bring it to a close. But the first thing is just acknowledging the fact I'm out of season, and I'm off this, balance, and, and I'm And it's in, not I'm a vulnerable. permanent thing. No, no, yeah, it, it, it can be gonna, fixed. Here's the key. If you're out of season in one situation, that means you can be in season in another situation. Right. You're always There's always a sweet spot of a season yeah, to be in. Find your you just got to stop pushing the one you're in that ain't working. Yeah. All right, that's one of 10. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all that rich. Yeah. And I love they, it. They really are. But this is one of those, again, as we go back through each of these, I'm like, I really want to go back and listen to the whole thing yeah, again. Yeah, I know. I love it. You got a, you got a long flight coming up. You're going to I Italy. I do, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, listen to all the yeah, podcasts. Exactly. I can just download all the podcasts on the way to Italy. Well, that one, JJ, is episode 34. Yeah. So if you want to listen to that whole one, go back to episode 34. And if anybody else wants to listen to it, that's honestly one that was probably the most shared podcast we've ever done. My conversation with Stephen Mansfield about 10 signs of a leadership crash. It'll definitely save a lot of leaders a lot of trouble. Go download episode 34 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. JJ, the best book I've ever read that introduces the Enneagram Mm -hmm. is a book called The Road Back to You. Yep. And it's by a guy named Ian Cron. Yeah. And he's brilliant. Yeah, my brother listened to this podcast and texted me, like, you know, our podcasts come out Monday morning, and I think by 10 a.m., my brother texted me and said, I already ordered the book. <laughs> like, he was like, just he he listened to the podcast and he immediately ordered the book, you know, and he loves Enneagram, it. Yeah, the Enneagram is really complicated. So to explain it in a simple way where you actually get something out of it, and mm-hmm. if you don't know, the Enneagram is, it's a theory that there are nine different personality types, but then there are also wings and then there are subtypes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so it's really complicated. And then there's not only wings and subtypes, there's nine levels of health and unhealth. Yep. There's actually like 220 yeah. personality yeah. types. <laughs> and, and Ian understands them. But the clip that we're going to play is about the importance of being self-aware. Yep. And there are really only a couple of kinds of people that I find it very difficult to work with. One is people who are dishonest, mm-hmm. you know, because that's obviously that's about trust. Yeah. But then there's people who aren't self-aware. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness is incredibly important because it's only with self-awareness that we can self-correct. Yep. And we become better people. And Ian Cron, of course, we go into in the actual interview the nine different personality types. But the big idea is you want to understand these nine types so that you can know who you are yep. and what your flaws are and what your skills are so you can operate in your best self. So here's a bit of my conversation with Ian Cron. What in the world is the Enneagram? That's where we're going to have to start, right? What is it? Sure. Well, the Enneagram is an ancient model of personality, or what we might call today a personality typology. And it teaches that there are nine core basic personality types in the world, one of which we all gravitate toward one of them in childhood as a coping strategy, a way of navigating the world. So it starts out as a a bit of a negative or defense mechanism, you think, to develop this personality trait. You know, we're all born with a temperament, right? We're right. all born with things like some people are depressives, other people are anxious. Yeah. Over temperament goes this thing called personality, right? Mm. These are traits, right? And ways of being in the world that help us meet cultural expectations, that help us fit in and belong, that help us get our needs met. Right. right? So we develop personality to make our way around the world. Personality is really good, right? The purpose of the Enneagram is not to delete your personality and start over, Mm -hmm. right? It's meant to help you identify those aspects of your personality that aren't working for you anymore as an adult that helps you get through childhood. The downside of your coping strategy becomes a problem. Yeah, like the old expression that we sometimes use is what got you here won't get you there. 
Yeah, well, what the Enneagram gave you, and I think it, it gives other people, is the really all-important quality of self-awareness. Right, I, I right. recently read a study from Cornell. They did a study of 72 CEOs of companies that were anywhere from $50 million to $5 billion in yearly revenue. And out of the study came, or from the research, what it, what it delivered was that the key predictor of success was self-awareness mm. for leaders. That without self-awareness, you're just banging guardrail to guardrail through people's lives, and you know, and just creating debris fields. What is self-awareness? Self-awareness, knowing why you do what you do, or the ability to to evaluate mistakes. What, it, what define self-awareness in the context you're using it in? Yeah, self-awareness would be uh, the capacity to monitor and self-regulate your internal world. Mm, okay. In real time, the ability to be able to look inside and know why it is that you think, feel, and behave the way you do so that in the moment you can make different choices than the ones you make when you're on automatic self. I'm mad right now, but it's probably because I'm insecure about this and not really because this person is a jerk. Sure. That's self-awareness, right? Right. I had a guy that I was consulting with at a hedge fund in, in New York, and after working with him for a little bit, he knew he had hit a moment of success. When a person on his team who happened to be, by the way, a one, the perfectionist, right, and uh, was a fairly extroverted, <laughs> I guess, perfectionist, came in and, and said, uh, "I need to tell you wrong about this." Now, as you know, perfectionists. <laughs> no, you don't do that. It's right, you don't scary. do that yeah. to the manager. And he said, "In that moment, I had the capacity to live responsively, not reactively." See, Don, most people live in a state of reactivity. All of the time. Hmm. You know, when I say reactivity, it's kind of like being trapped in one of those British phone booths with a hornet. You know what I mean? You're right, just yeah. swapping all around and yeah. relationally banging into people and doing, you're just reacting all the time. But he said, I was able in that moment because I knew my type now. I knew what my liabilities, my assets were, you know, what my yeah. strengths and weaknesses were. He said, when previously I would have probably just fired the guy in the moment, I just would have swatted at the hornet and killed it in the phone hmm. booth. I could pause and make a different choice because I knew what was happening between us and that made all the difference. All right, I'm a 4-3. I'm a 3-4, three, three, right? No, I'm a 2-3. Oh, you're a 2-3? Yep. A so nurture and achiever. And achiever. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think we all benefit from that here at StoryBrand. If you want to figure out what your personality type is or just know what all <laughs> nine of them are, episode 42 of the Building a StoryBrand podcast that you can find, of course, on iTunes. Well, we've probably saved the best for last. <laughs> yes. The uh, Santa Claus of business. <laughs> Don't you think? I, I think, think there's a lot of truth to that, yeah. I think Christmas morning... There's, 3 a.m., I walk into my living room, and Ken Blanchard is standing there with yeah. a big red bag, and I go, I knew it. Yeah, I knew it yeah. the whole time. There's definitely some jolly in there. There's definitely <laughs> He's some, the most delightful yeah, guy. I have not said this publicly yet, mm -hmm. and I don't know how to describe it, but I have, I'll just say it, I have crushes on both of these people. Like, <laughs> Claire and Ken? Yeah, I wanted to say man crush, but it wouldn't really apply to Claire. So, like, I'm just going to say it. Like, I have crushes on these people, on yeah, both Claire fantastic. and Ken. Yeah, they're fantastic. This segment is actually about a book that they've written together on mentoring. Mm -hmm. Claire is young, but she's unbelievably successful. Yeah. She was an executive at Twitter. She got the Pope on Twitter. Yeah. She flew to the Vatican <laughs> and set the Pope up on 
Twitter. Never gets old. Yeah, but she's young, and Ken is—he's not old by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But he's—you know—he's retired, and they mentor each other. Yeah, and they wrote a book about it. Yeah. I, it's just such a wonderful idea. But a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably leaders, mm-hmm. and they've stepped into this role. And some of them think, well, I need somebody to pour back into me. It's probably going to be some older mentor. And I think there's truth to that. But what if there are people who are younger than you, who may know a lot less than you, but they can teach you something about what they're seeing from their perspective. And it's just an all new, it's a new tool that you can put in your tool belt to become a better human being. Yeah. And this conversation is about that. It's about mutual mentoring relationships. It's about mentoring being a two-way street. Here is a clip from my conversation with Ken Blanchard and Claire Diaz-Ortiz. So, I mean, I I think what's so funny is, you know, I've always been a huge fan of mentoring. You know, I had this really powerful experience in my own life of basically mentoring this Kenyan teen um, and to bring him to the U.S. And then I've also in my own career had these great mentors. But I think that I'd never really understood the sort of you know, two-way street situation of mentoring at its best until yeah. Ken and I started working on this project together. I mean, truly, Don, like when we started writing, I had this vision that, you know, okay, I would I would meet with Ken and, you know, in San Diego or New York or on Skype and he would say great things and then I would write them down in my moleskin and then go home at night and, you know, like review them and, and highlight them. Right. And, you know, try right. to that's, them, I mean, you know? I'm imagining that's how it would go. Right. And it was so interesting because Ken basically made it clear really on that, hey, you know, that's that's not the case. You know, he basically said, hey, I've got a few years on you, but you've got a lot to teach me too. And I think that was a mm. really kind of amazing, very empowering experience for me. And um, it, it's completely transformed what I think of of really positive, powerful mentoring. Well, I mean, it, it's also counterintuitive because you're describing a kind of relationship that doesn't exist in very many places. I mean, especially when there's an age gap, you would normally think of one person who's sort of, you know, helping the other person accomplish something or become something. And it's a one-way street. I mean, that's the way it's traditionally been thought of or defined. Had you guys seen this somewhere else? You know, what models did you have going into this relationship? I think, Don, we started to think about the mentoring relationships that we had been in. I mean, people had mentored us and realized that we had also taught them some things too, you know, and hadn't, I think it's true. We both kind of went, aha, this is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a learning from from both, you know. And I remember when I uh, got a chance to write a book with Norman Vincent Peale. He was 86 and I was 42. Wow. And I thought, you know, like Claire, I'm just going to learn from, from Norman. And he said, oh, I want to hear what you have to say, you know. And I, <laughs> so I taught him some stuff about leadership that I have been doing. And, and he just taught me just about just being positive in in life and, and inclusive and all that kind of thing. I just my favorite one was him as I was asking him about his faith, you know, and about, you know, who was gonna go to hell and who wasn't and all that. And he said, I believe in a loving God. He said, I bet he handles that in a loving way. He said, I'm in sales, not management. And uh, <laughs> that's impacted my whole attitude towards towards a lot of stuff. I'm in sales. I, my job is not to judge people. It's to love them and to help them. You know, Don, I think with what Ken just said, though, you can hear kind of the kernel of, of why our mentoring relationship has worked. And that's simply right, because yeah. Ken has this extreme, extreme humility. 
And I think yeah, that was something yeah. that I have completely learned about, you know, if mentoring works in a in a sort of two-way street model of, you know, the mentor and the mentee are both learning from each other, it's only going to work really if if both people come to it basically humble and um, yeah. can has that in a way that, uh, you know, not all leaders do. And so I think that's what really makes it work. Well, as people listen to this podcast, they're going to want a relationship like this. They're going to want to get into a mutually mentoring relationship. Kim, what would you say they need to think about before even getting started? I mean, you know, somebody's listening to this. They're 35 years old. They'd love to have somebody older step into their lives. There's somebody listening to this. They're 60. They'd love to mentor somebody younger or get into a relationship where they can learn What's the first thing that they should be thinking about? Well, one of the things we include in a book, a a friend of mine, Jim Ballard, told me years ago, if you're going to work with somebody, there's two aspects. One is essence and the other is form. Essence is heart to heart and values to values. And form is what are you going to do? And he said, be careful to jump to form right away before you have essence because it'll bite you, you know. And, And I had this idea of writing a book on the power of positive management. And I went to a real leader in the whole positive thinking field. And our meeting was all about form. We wanted to know who was going to do what, how we are going to divide the royalties and this and that. And so I decided to pass on it. And our publisher called and said, I wow. heard you were disappointed in your meeting. Have you ever thought about writing a book with Norman Vincent Peale? And I first said, is he still alive? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I, hadn't thought, I hadn't thought about him because my parents went to his church before I was born. And and I said, now is he alive? He's amazing. So I Went to New York and spent a three-hour lunch with Norman and his wife, Ruth, who she had a pad called Lady Boss. She's really an amazing woman who just died at 101 about a year ago. In a three-hour lunch, there wasn't one form question. You know, we never even got to decide what we were going to write about, you know. And it was, tell us about you, Ken, and we'll tell you about us. And it was just amazing. And at the end, Norman turned to Ruth and asked the ultimate essence question. He said, Ruth, you think we should write this book or write a book with this young man? You know, and and she said, absolutely, under one condition. He said, what's that? From now on, he will bring his wife, Margie, uh, and four of us will work on this together because she had, they had heard good things about Margie, you know. And and, uh, so the first time we got together, we started thinking, well, this is fun. We're together. What do we want to write about? <laughs> wow. I think that describes what Claire and I were talking about earlier, that you're establishing essence, you're establishing chemistry, you're establishing uncoded connections that happen between yes. people. All right, JJ. Love yeah. Seriously. yeah, me too. Crush. Yeah, the book again is called One Minute Mentoring, How to Find and work with a mentor, and while you'll benefit from being one, Ken Blanchard and Claire Diaz-Ortiz, wherever you buy books. Hey, I feel like he's been my virtual mentor forever, yeah. like for 25 years I'm gonna, since I first I'm now referring to it as my one-minute crush. <laughs> my one-minute crush. Yeah, they're both my one-minute crushes. <laughs> Two-minute crush. <laughs> well, next week we've got a great episode. we got Seth Godin. It's a long conversation. Talk about mentor. Oh, my gosh. Seth is unreal. He is. He's one of the most brilliant people I've yeah. ever had the pleasure of meeting. I actually got a call from a friend, Dave Ramsey, mm-hmm. who lives in here in town. And for whatever reason, Dave is nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why. He's just kind. He's kind to everybody. Yeah. But I'm always like, me too. You're kind <laughs> to me too. And he said, Donnie, I want you to have dinner with Seth Godin and Brad Thor. Brad Thor writes like CIA spy novels. Uh-huh. He's like 25 <laughs> million of them. And Dave Ramsey and I sat across from each other at this table. And Seth and Brad sat across from each other. And I don't think Dave and I ever talked we just listened to brad and seth talk and i literally thought these are 
Brad's the most interesting guy you'll ever meet, and Seth is probably the smartest. Yeah. And yeah. actually, Dave and I may have been the smartest for just not talking. Yeah, yeah. Been like a <laughs> yeah. sign of true yeah. wisdom. But these guys were really brilliant, and I asked him, I begged him, please give us the charity of coming on the show, and he just said, Don, I would love to. It would be my honor. And it's a wonderful conversation. We've already recorded it. That episode is next week's, the next episode of the Building Story Brand podcast, my conversation with Seth Godin. In fact, you're going to love it so much, I'm going to give you a little tease. Here's, a, here's just a bit of my conversation with Seth. When people are buying things, they're looking for a thousand clues and cues. They're looking for everything from facial expressions to how it reminds them of their grandparents. But when people are selling things, all of a sudden they become RFP-obsessed, checklist-making feature people. And that's not how we buy things. So why are you selling things that way? We don't actually buy the cheapest of anything or by most measures, the best of anything. When we choose something, when we recommend it, when we miss it when it's not there, we're buying it as a human, not as a computer. And what we want more than anything is to buy it from someone we trust, who wants what we want, who is going to make the change happen in the world that we seek. And it's too challenging for most marketers to get their arms around that because they lack empathy. They lack the humility to realize that they have to do more than just show up with pretty good stuff at a pretty good price. And they have to make magic. They have to be a ringleader, a, a host, a, a, not just a talk show host, but a impresario, a maker of magic. And it turns out once you figure that out, it's one of the great jobs. It's one of the great opportunities, but you can't blink. You have to lean into it and do it on purpose. All right, we'll tune in next week for that. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, he just sees the world in such a different way. When he gives you advice, you just go, that should have been obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, been. yeah. We've been doing it this way for years, and we shouldn't be doing it that way. And he just shares a ton of that on this episode. Listen, talking about giving advice, talking about giving great advice, we're doing something really interesting here. We have thousands and thousands of StoryBrand alumni, and they've been coming to us for years saying, hey, can you help me with my website? Can you help me create a sales funnel? And we say, well, that's not really what we do, right? We, we, we help you find your messaging and your messages that you put in those sales funnels for them to work because we think that's the missing piece in the marketplace because most marketing doesn't work at all because you're not saying it right. What we've started to do now is actually certify marketing coaches. We call it the StoryBrand Guide Program. If you love marketing and if you're good at it, and you want your own business of being a marketing coach, or if you work within an organization and want to be certified by us, we have a four-day really intense training. You leave really understanding how to implement a marketing plan for a company that gets them results. And not only that, you actually get listed on our directory at clarifyyourmessage.com. Other business leaders, they go to clarifyyourmessage.com and they look for coaches. It's expensive. It costs about $10,000. And we just talked to Ben Ortlip, who's one of our guides. You can actually find him on the directory. And he's bringing in twenty-five to $30,000 a month just from leads he's getting on the directory. So th we're not kidding around. Yeah. <laughs> this actually yeah. works. Yeah. If you want to be a StoryBrand certified guide, you can learn more at storybrand.com slash guide. That's storybrand.com slash guide. We really want you to be good. If you're already good at marketing, if you're a pretty good copywriter, then we're going to teach you a system that you can bring into any company to grow their revenue. And we'll also teach you how to structure your own business in order to be an effective guide. But you can find out more at storybrand.com slash 
guide, and we can't wait to see you at that training. We have a wonderful community of guides. I think we have like 40 now. So the next uh, training is coming up in September, but you want to register and get your place now because we do cap it off. We want to keep it a small cohort so that we can really uh, dive in with you and help you understand our system and how we help companies grow. So anyway, you can find out more at storybrand.com slash guide. JJ, what a great six months. Love it. And we're going to do it again in another six months. We'll do another best of. Always appreciate you and having you as a co-host. I think uh, everybody they're starting to call you the, the voice of Story Brand, which I'm trying One not to resent. Told you that I, I, I know, but it, it hit me. It hurt me. <laughs> it just hurt me. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>